And I look down like, I'm like, what the hell was that? And I see blood coming from my leg and immediately hits me. I'm like, that was a rock. That was a ricochet like that. Like, you know, when you think of an like just a scenario, like instant, like, you know, exactly what's going on before you can like even it, it takes you longer to say what you actually know is happening. Right. It was one of those moments where as soon as it hit me, I knew oh shit, this isn't rain. I'm getting shot at. <clears throat> I'm somebody shooting at me. <laughs> like, right. All this is like registering in a split second. Team, that is Daniel Rodriguez or D-Rod as I call him. And you are listening to the Epic Table podcast. Welcome back team. I uh, hope you're all excited for a 2022 kickoff. And I am so stoked with the list of guests we've got going on. I hope uh, some of you are coming back to work, maybe you're still on holidays, uh, you're ready to have an incredible year. We obviously had a tough 2020, 2021 was a bit more stability, and I know a lot of you are ready to launch those rocket ships for whatever reason, but uh, I know your health is something of priority, particularly this time of year, so let's get after it. And team, I want to you know begin this year with an incredible story podcast. So I met Daniel about about four months ago. I've known about his story briefly, but I met, met him about four months ago. He has quite honestly one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard, and he's only 30, he only just turned 34. So what I want to kind of preface here is most of us create a chapter in our life um, you know, maybe have one or two chapters over the course of our lives. And what I mean by that is like key moments. He has had three, <laughs> three specific ones, and all of which have happened before the age of like 33, which is unbelievable. Now, I do need to preface in this episode, as uh, D Rod is a army veteran, he does talk about some pretty gnarly times. So if you're someone who doesn't want to hear about acts of war, you don't want to hear about, um, you know, un- unfortunately people le- losing, their, losing their lives or you're around ki- children that you don't want to expose to that. Maybe um, maybe put this one either on your, on your own or uh, maybe park it for next episode because he talks about how he, he does talk about PTSD. So if you're someone who suffered from that and this may trigger from you, I don't want you to, you know, have any triggers. Um, but I do want to say that if you're someone who's like, you know, bearable for that, it is honestly one of the most inspiring stories to come out of it, what he was able to do as a result. So again, preface, there are, we do talk about acts, um, you know, we do talk about Iraq, we do talk about Afghanistan war, um, but there's also some super beautiful times to come. And that's why, that's why I needed to have him on to essentially make you guys know that if D-Rod can get through what he did, anyone can do anything and that's why they want to kick him off with 2022 speaking of kicking off 2022 oh man i'm excited for all of you and your health goals and just keeping things on track and creating a wonderful foundation to lay for what will be this incredible year for me, I've just come back from Hawaii from a nice, refreshing trip. I'm still plant-based. I've got my YouTube series, the, the challenge I've got, 10 pounds of lean muscle in 10 weeks. Uh, and we're going to see how we can continue to do that even after coming back and setting the tone. And that's what it's all about. I know a lot of us do the whole, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to have a revolution, resolution, New Year's resolution. And I'm I'm not about necessarily that myself. I'm like, my whole life is a resolution. <laughs> but uh, what I will say is I'm going to start every single day with athletic greens as i've continued to do for the past six 
and something years now. Oh, almost six and a half years. So what I do, and this is like, I think of a lot for people, they, they say, how do I start my day? How do I get my healthy habits going? It's like, if you start your day with Athletic Greens, personally, I'm like, oh, it's gonna be a ripper of a day. Because yes, you do get the 75 vitamins and minerals. Yes, you do get the prebiotics, the probiotics, and the digestive enzymes. But what's awesome is that it is almost like a modality for, for uplifting performance and health. It's a habit. So if you want to do what I do every single day and have your greens, you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash epic and you can start 2022 with not only your greens, but we're continuing on that free vitamin D3 plus K2 for a full year and the five travel packs. So that's what I've done every single day and that's why I get so much energy. I feel so good. I've always done this and we can talk about the nutritional benefits, but this is kicking off 2022 in style. Vitamin D3 plus K2, the subscription and the five free travel packs, athleticgreens.com forward slash epic. All right, team. So as I said, this episode is incredible. It was actually, I think it's the longest one we've ever had because I just couldn't stop hearing him story tell. So strap on in, break it down into 30-minute blocks, if you will, but you definitely need to listen to the end to hear how he's turned out to where he is today. D-Rod, thank you for your service. Thank you for everything you've done. And of course, your incredible, incredible story and vulnerability. Thank you, my man. D-Rod, my man, welcome (laughs) to the Epic Table podcast, dude. Thank you for having me, Dan. You're a legend. You know, I'm going to always take the invite if you reach out to me. Uh, so thank you for having me. <laughs> Pleasure, man. You and I met um, at HPLT in Austin. And I actually was sitting next to you uh, at the initial, uh, you know, dinner where we all got to meet each other. And I'm like, this dude's got cool heads, like shaggy, <laughs> reminds me of uh, a bit of mine. And then he gets up and says his name's Dan. I'm like, cool, he's even better because he's got the same name as me. And then... <laughs> little, little, little did I know that on the, on the I guess the itinerary you're first up with the first person giving a speech into your history, your story, and um, why your life is so inspiring, <laughs> bro. So, and then we, then we got to hang out the whole weekend. I'm like, what a start! <laughs> yeah, no, it was a great, it was a great trip. I'm really happy. Yeah, like you said, HPLT. Brian invited me, and I had spoken at the first one but I'd never taken part in any of the events. It was kind of like very sporadic and Brian invited me again. It was um, opening day was November 11th, which is veterans day in the U S. So there were some like good milestones of potentially sharing, uh, sharing my story again with the, you know, with the crew with the HBLT family. And so, yeah, same thing, bro. I got in there and I don't know if you remember all the bags had names on them, like the gift (laughs) bags. And I was like, I was looking for mine and I read your name first the first time I looped that table and I kind of like, you know, hypnotized myself and didn't see that the other Dan, me, mine was right next to you. So I like was scounging the room for like the first 10 minutes. Like where the hell, like they, there's there, this other Dan must've taken my spot. And then lo and behold, I was like literally right next to you, like hit it off with you. Like you said, the whole weekend and no, nah, it's good vibes. I get along with the Aussie culture. So like I, I already knew right away that it was going to be a good time. Like, <laughs> yeah, man, a hundred percent. You were sharing that like a lot of your, I guess compatriots in the in the in the space, right? Your um, a fellow veterans. Would you say? Did you actually did you ever do a deployment in Australia at all? 
No, never. I mean, I had a, an ex relationship, so I guess it was kind of a war zone at times. But no, never. <laughs> no, no, I'm just playing. I, I love Australia. I had great, great times. But no, uh, one of my best mates here. Um, the reason I'm actually in Medellin. Um, so like, okay, so my the outpost, the movie, get done filming this. The weapons specialist. Um, he's an ex ranger. Uh, he's got like twenty gazillion deployments and he's you know we're both living in la at the time and he's like hey man the university of georgia is doing the study with another ranger buddy of mine um called heroics heart project and they're taking veterans that have been through extreme combat um and taking them down to peru to do trials um it's going to be like a week process it's paid for it's a nonprofit. like you got to change your diet all this blah 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 blah." i was like yeah i'm in like this i need this so ended up going down (laughs) and my roommate was this Aussie bloke from like the special ops, SAS special ops. This is crazy, crazy, crazy Aussie guy. And so after this, we, we became really good friends. I mean, we spent a week together, like, you know, going through hell and back through, I think we did seven ceremonies in eight days or something like that. It was, I mean, I had changed my diet for a week. I was doing Skype consultations with my mentor, like getting my, um, uh, like my, you know, intentions, right. Everything said it's, it's, it's really, it's really beautiful um but yeah so we hit it off and then pandemic hits and all this we go to carnival and he's like mate you got to come down here so yeah one of my best friends here in medellin is a crazy aussie guy special ops he was i mean done ton of ton of deployments <clears throat> he, he's you know got pictures of him in afghanistan jumping out of helicopters with his dog strapped to his chest like <clears throat> like super elite wow. like very very elite uh a commando so he's, he's he's a crazy little guy um, but he's the reason I'm down here and uh, kind of that side story of how I got to Medellin through him. Dude, that's awesome. I mean, us Aussies are apparently crazy when we travel. So um, yeah. I'm glad to hear the, the the brand is living up to the hype. But, uh, mate, you're, you're, you're like, you're only 32, right? 33, 33. <sighs> 33. Okay, cool. So you're only 33. But, you know, <clears throat> aside from the fact that I could hang out with you and talk absolute smack and, you know, be, be a you know one of your mates like lo and behold you have this whole other side of you that is incredibly inspiring to the point where it's become because it is so inspiring you are now public speaker and you you know amongst many things that you do but you're like when you tell your story it is one of the most uplifting things and so i thought what a better way to kick off 2022 and the first episode of the year than having the listeners listen to your amazing story, man. So, and this is an interesting one for me, man, because I like honestly, when when you were giving, when when I heard it for the first time, bro, like when I first heard it, so many puzzles. I think I was telling you this. So many things clicked into place for me. So many things where you, I think I was saying to you afterwards that I'm like, oh, I've seen that, or I heard about this, and all this kind of stuff. So, um, but also, it's like. I've got to, I did say to myself within the first, I think you spoke for like almost 45 minutes and everyone was just drawn into your story. <clears throat> and I knew within the first 30 seconds of you speaking, I'm like, I'm going to get this guy on the podcast. And then I'm, <laughs> I'm like, but I'm not going to answer any, ask any questions because he's just going to be storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> so I think uh, with that being said, dude, I, w- I, will, I will jump in at some points, but I would love to love for you if you would be so kind to take us back to how you tell your story because I've heard it before. I'm sure you've done it quite a few times, but um, yeah, man, I'd love if, if if you would be so kind. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, this is this is good. 
I'll uh, I'll see what I can do and kind of fit this into a good into a good rhythm. But yeah, no, uh, thank you for that introduction and, and this platform and, and a chance to tell my story. Uh, it it never kind of becomes easier. Like I, I don't really know the right word right now, but I guess just normal that it is my life is an inspiring event series of events to some degree, right? Like people are like, oh man, you have such an inspiring. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, I really hope I have a lot more left. <laughs> so at times it's difficult for me to like really sink myself into this, the, 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 if you will, the meat and potatoes of what has given me a platform or has kind of cultivated recognition in my life and, and what I endured. So thank you for that. And uh, yeah, so I, I take people back. I like to say I start when I'm around 18 uh, more or less just now that I'm 33, yeah, I got maybe I need to push it to 19, give myself another <laughs> getting older. So no, uh, no, when I was 18, four days after I graduated high school, my father passed away of a, of a major heart attack. And that really just rattled my world drastically because to a lot of people did not know what the bare minimum I was doing to get by in my life at that point, I would show up to school. I think you, it was like something like 60 absences. If you had more than 60 absences or tardies to class, you, you couldn't like physically graduate or pass that year. I think I like 56, my senior year of high school, barely showed up. My parents were going through a separation. Um, I was super sport oriented. My father was the athletic director at the uh, local, uh, the Marine Corps base Quantico, which is, you know, a huge base in the U S um, so I would just sports and the military lifestyle and the DC mentality, Northern Virginia is where I was born and raised, um, was a very, uh, it was a different ecosystem of, of upbringing. I had, you know, as good diversity, um, you know, I had a gr- really, really good life. Me and my sister, we had everything provided for us. We, we had, we were living well and, uh, you know, not nothing rich by any means, but we had two loving parents that provided the world for us. My sister was a dual sport athlete in college. She played in uh, division two school in Tennessee. She's eight years older than I. So me coming up without an older sister, my parents going through divorce, I was kind of an only child. Um, and when my father passed away, it was an exposure to what my real world was because all my friends were going off to four-year universities, excuse me, or at that point had already been accepted. They had already been doing the process for a year and a half or a year, you know, their SAT scores, this, that, and the other. And, you know, when I walked across that stage and got the diploma, I knew there was nothing thereafter for me. Like the facade was, was coming to an end. Um, so when my father passed, I didn't really have many options in seriousness. Like, like it was just one of those things, um, you know, especially when you're put on the pedestal athletically, I think there's, there's a, a, a farther uh, cliff to fall off if you don't um, amount to those uh, ambitions or don't achieve what other people thought you might have achieved when you were younger, right? That, that's a pressure. How, how good of an athlete were you? Sorry to say that. How, how good of an athlete were you? Uh, uh, I mean, so basketball-wise, I was two-time AAU state champion. Like This is how obsessed my father was with sports. I could throw before I could walk. Um, he wow. was my coach from 10, from 10 and under to 18 in AAU basketball. And I started playing when I was six. So for four years, I played 10 and under and just sat on the bench, only played during practices or if we were up by 20 points. And then I started playing travel basketball when I was 10. So soccer or American football or, or, or you know, football American, I'm in Medellin. So American soccer, I was extreme. I excelled at as well. Basketball I excelled at. Um, I was a three-year letterman in high school and then football 
was obvious. It was a gift. Like just my and hand eye coordination and my ability to catch and just run routes was something that I just naturally could do. And so I played peewee football my whole entire life. And then when I went into high school, there was a series of events. We had a thing called the DC sniper, which completely erased my freshman year of high school. And then I was a three-year letterman or two-year letterman thereafter. I had an issue with my coach my junior year and he actually cut me. He was like, sorry, you can't play. And I had too much of an ego to go back and play JV when I'd already been playing varsity. So to put in perspective, I didn't even play a year in high school, took off three years when I joined the army and then was athletic enough and still had the capability of walking onto a division one program. So in a nutshell, I would say my athletic ability was was top tier, like not trying to say like I, I was a stud, but I, I mean, I had ex- exceptional athletic ability in a, in a well diverse area and, and, and great competition to um, kind of <clears throat> compare me against if that, if that kind of gives you an idea. Um, so yeah, yeah huge, part of my, huge part huge part. I was just going to say, bro, before you um, <clears throat> continue on and I apologize, I'm going to have to force myself to interrupt some times because this story is so amazing, but I'm just going to um, champion you for a second and, I know in speaking to you, dude, you find it so hard to talk yourself up in a positive light. And I think this is something we all deal with. But I know you deal, I know like, just like you and I both deal with this, right? It's like to put yourself in a position where you actually say, no, I'm good at something is is actually kind of hard, right? It really, really is. So when I ask that question, it's a very difficult answer. Rather than me telling you, you know, you talk about the obviousness of like, okay, yeah, my father passed away, which which is not an easy thing to do but it is the same obviousness right you're obviously very good to yourself at this and your father you know did pass away so two obvious answers but you still find the second one harder to actually say right (laughs) so like i want to let this know that the listeners know that you know dan is a truly humble person one of the most humble people i've ever met uh so as you continue his story you'll uh You'll probably hear like he, he struggles to actually admit uh, his <laughs> amazing achievements. So please go on is, as you talk about the true. difficulties of. <laughs> this is true. This, this is, is true. true. <laughs> this is true. I really, I, I'm, I tell, I'm so bad at talking about myself. I really am. Um, not, I'm not bad. At it. I just don't like. I don't know. You get it. You get it. But yeah. So yeah, sports, sports were sports was a huge thing, and I think that's like I was kind of saying, like, that's what I was known for. Like I was a dual sport athlete. I played on the travel team. You know, I had all the other kids from other schools knew who I was because, you know, competition, blah, blah, blah. And then when I had a division three prospect for football, had no offers for basketball, again, didn't go through the process of clearing house, submitting my grades, any of that stuff. So, you know, if you're asking for a miracle, it's just not, it's impossible. It wouldn't have never happened. So father passed, it was just this eye opening, like, oh man, like, I'm the facade now. Like, you know, when you're on the court and everything's good for the last four years, you're not thinking of the future. And then when you have a tragedy hit kind of resets everything or, you know, for me it did. Um, and I was looking at my options of staying in my hometown, potentially working, I wouldn't say dead end jobs, but not inspiring jobs or anything to challenge me or, or, you know, something I was passionate about. Um, and this was 2006 during the Bush administration. And, I'd say probably maybe a week and a half, I applied for two jobs and I didn't get those jobs. One was like a traveling, I would work like power lines for the Dominion power, like, you know, the biggest power thing in the U S and anytime there was a storm, a natural disaster around the U S I would fly in and, you know, work all this time and a half. You didn't need a college education, didn't get any of the jobs. And I told myself, if I don't get this job, I'm joining the army. <clears throat> and my buddy's like, you're an idiot. And I'm like, bro, I like, I'm giving it two weeks. Like, <laughs> I gotta go. 
<laughs> like I got to get out of town. And uh, that's another trait about me. Like I'm very, I wouldn't say sporadic, but like I, when I have my, my blinders on to achieve something or, or know that I need to pivot or, or, or create something new for myself, I'm ready to go now. And so I go into the recruiter station maybe a week after and uh, go through the process of, Hey, you know, I want to do this, filled out my ASVAB. I actually scored really high in contrast to my grades and my, uh, my, my efforts in high school. I was, I was, I was a smart kid. It's, I feel like you actually have to be smarter to try to not to get away with things in the school than actually, if you just do apply yourself and do the work and get through it. Like, what's like this, I what's through- the test? What was this test though, man? Just to put this in perspective a bit more and how different uh, is it from say, as, 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 I don't know. It's an act like, it's a standard achievement <laughs> test more or less, right? I mean, it's a broad spectrum from everything from like engineering to um, geometry. It's just kind of like a broad spectrum test to place you and your skill set before you enter the military. And I scored, I, I don't remember the numbering system, but I scored in the highest tier where every job in the army was available to me. So I scored in the, the gra- where I could, I had satellite communications, top secret clearance, everything that I wanted was was in my fingertips. <laughs> so I'm going through, I took satellite communications. I was going to have a t- top secret clearance. I was leaving in three months to Fort Huachuca, Arizona. I was going to be able to do my college uh, associate's degree on the side, like the world at my fingertips, like the mil- the cush military life, filling out my paperwork and the lady's looking through my paper. She's like, Oh, I'm like, Oh, what? And I'll never, it's like Richmond, Virginia. And she's just like this, it just ideal black woman nails done to a T like just looked at me. Oh, she's like, you smoke weed in the last six months. <laughs> I was like, uh, I was like, yes, ma'am. It was one, it was one time, blah, blah, blah. Like one time in high school. And I was like a pothead in high school. I was like, yes, ma'am. I tried it on like, graduation night. Like I didn't like it. It wasn't for me. She's like, it's okay. But you can't apply for a, t- a secret clearance, a top secret clearance, having smoked or admitting to smoke within six months of the process. And I was like, Oh, uh, okay. This is news to me. Like, you know, I mean, I'm like, so in that moment, I literally lost every single job that I was qualified for got stripped away. Anything that needed a security clearance. I mean, literally anything above infantry, a truck driver and a cook I lost because I admitted to smoking weed. So I was sitting at this desk and she was like, you can reapply in six months for that. I was like, Oh hell no. I was like, you know, I didn't say, I was like, no way. Like this is what? And so I asked her, I was like, do you have infantry? And I, again, <laughs> she just gives me like the stereotypical black woman. Like, you do know we're in a time of war, don't you? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> and I was like, yes, ma'am. She's like, okay, hold on. Like picks up her phone. Mm-hmm. Yep. He said he's ready to leave. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> she's like, look, she looks at me over the table. She's like, can you, can you leave in tomorrow? You, can you leave the day after tomorrow? I'm like, yes, ma'am. She's like, mm, yes. Okay. All right. Yes, sir. Roger that. Hangs up the phone. Like, She's like, are you crazy? You boys are crazy. Blah, blah, filling out my paperwork. I have to go home that day, tell my mom and sister, like, hey, I joined the army. Oh, when do you leave? Oh, tomorrow. <laughs> like it was I went in there wow. with I went in there, scored high on my ASVAB, thought I was gonna have like this perfect trajectory of four years, complete my associates, the uh, army would pay for my education, have a top secret clearance on top of that, come back to the DC area work at some, you know, North of Grumman contractor making six figures in the next four years and probably be working remotely right now if that would have been like what would have happened. But no, the kid had to smoke weed in high school and everything got messed up from there on out. 
<laughs> so interestingly, interesting, man. Like, just super curiously, if you said, could you have lied? And would that hundred percent, bro? If that taught me anything in life, lie, deny, make counter accusations. Are you kidding me? Hell yeah, I would have lied. They have no. They would have not found you out. They just. It, I'm telling you, it's a process of just weeding out, weeding out. It's all it is. It's a. It's a. It's a scare tactic of because you're. I was 18, man. I had no. They were telling me they're going to interview for this TS clearance. They're going to interview all my friends, all my family. Like they're like, if you, it's okay. And they're telling you it's okay. Like it's okay if you've done it. Like we'd rather you be clear and transparent so we know. It's like they have no business knowing, and you're in there on your terms trying to do something. Like they, you know what I mean? Like they, I could have lied. I already passed the drug test to get in. So from that point forward. It was a clean slate. They, there was no need for me to, unless I had like some crazy crap on my record and for whatever reason, but for me, no, just for a simple little marijuana, it was how many people can we sift through this that might potentially be a risk because they admitted or have done this in the past in the future. And that's, and at this time before prop 64 in California and kind of the green movement, it, it was still taboo. Like, again, I'm from Virginia, born and raised in Virginia. We were like one of the last states to to integrate racially. I think same race, uh, interracial marriage wasn't legal till the seventies and marijuana was a felony until like this past year. (laughs) So it's just a very different world of when I entered into where, into where it is now. So yeah, it totally derailed, uh, everything that I had going on in the military and left me. I remember my options were cook or truck driver. And I was like, you mean to tell me I just had every job in the military and now it's a cook or a truck driver. She's like, those are what we have right now in your timeline. And that's when I was like, well, do you have infantry? She's like, you know, we're in a time of war. So yeah, I volunteered infantry. And within 48 hours, I was on a bus to Fort Benning, Georgia for basic training. Like it was that quick. Yeah. (laughs) And then I get through basic finish that off i have orders to go to hawaii so everybody's like oh why you're so lucky i'm like i know i know i'm so excited and two days before i graduate basic my bait my drill sergeant brings me in he's like hey your orders have changed to colorado i'm like what I'm like fort he's like fort Carson, colorado he's like your replacement soldier i was like what does this mean a soldier had been killed in iraq literally day like two three days before i graduated basic like within a 72-hour window of me getting my orders changed a soldier had already been killed so I never met the guy, but I, I know him just because he was best friends with all my platoon members. Like I replaced him in Iraq. Um, his name was Alan B. James. He was killed in Iraq. And as soon as I graduated, my orders, same, we had the same job, same MOS, all that. And I mean, we were losing soldiers left and right at this point. This was a surge that during the, fir- the Bush administration and it was hectic. And so right after I graduated basic training, 24 days, not even a month, I was in Iraq. I had already shipped off to Iraq. So within six months of me graduating high school, I was, <clears throat> all my friends were coming home for Christmas, like that first semester home, like, right. I was deploying <clears throat> and I took off, I took off, finished basic by the time they were done with their first semester of school. And then by the time they had to go back to school for their second semester, I was, I was on my first tour of duty. Wow. Um, so, yeah. so just to bring this up again, so <clears throat> it's, and this is naive, man. And you know, I've asked a lot of questions, like you know, just hanging out with you, and um, me just being super curious because it's another world. But it, like, when you're when you're in that position, when you're going to uh, you're going to go to Arizona, correct? Yeah. 
And so they just go, like, how does it work that they just swap you for someone else? Do you have a similar skill set that they just go, oh, no, you're going to go to Colorado as a replacement shoulder? Are we all replacement soldiers? <laughs> like, do you have a person uh, that's your opposite that if they go down, then you have to go look after them or whatever it is? Yeah, so in that, in that MOS, so what it's known as is your MOS. When you join the Army, you have an MOS. That's your, your job, essentially. I don't even actually know what the, the acronym stands for. <laughs> Pretty much your job job description. And so, <clears throat> yeah. I, okay. So the, to answer your question, a few stages, yes. The principal process of basic training for any soldier is just what it is. Basic training to, for whatever reason, if all chaos hits the fan, every soldier has the ability to pick up a weapon, fight, give proper aid, right? Like that's the basic training of it. So, after my basic training, I went on to infantry school. So I was, my MOS specifically is a frontline soldier. So if you think of it as a chessboard, I was a pawn. That's all I was. I was a little pawn up front. I was just a little pawn. So one of them boys goes down, just pop up another one. That's, that's how it's, it's sad. It's, you know, when you think of it as a factory assembly type of, of system, it's, it's really all it is, especially for the combat arms, because the combat arms make up their highest percentage of casualties because those are, there's only <clears throat> put it to you this way of the entire army, only 1% of the entire army is a combat arms MOS. So this means 99% of the jobs in the army are support. There's lawyers in the military. There's military police. They have their own policing system. There's um, canine. Every, I mean, like I said, I was truck driver food, um, I mean, literally any job you can name in the civilian world, if you go on a base, they have that as well. There's dentistry, hygienist, tech or x-ray technician, like just anything under the sun, there's, there's jo- a job for it in the military. Right. So those people aren't going to go replace a soldier that was just killed on the front lines. They have a specific job, but in theory, if that base gets overrun, right, everybody on that base has the knowledge and basic training to combat and fight as a soldier. If so, to go up to answer your question again, the reason I was a replacement is because I was that was my job, my duty, my responsibility, and yeah, my ticket got called pretty much. Just no process to it other than this is a graduating class coming out of basic training. We need two soldiers to replace the two that were just killed. One was wounded, one was killed. And so me, my bunkmate, and the guy next to me, all three R's, Reigns, Rodriguez, and Robles. Again, no order to whatever, just three, the next one's up. We all got... rerouted from our original duty stations directly to Iraq. So in the space of about, (laughs) a space of about like sounds like uh, seven, how long is basic training? Six weeks? It's nine weeks. And then for infantry school, it's an additional four. So 13 to 14 weeks. I think it's 14. So within about, so within about like, I would say what, three and a half months, you went from finishing high school to being put on the front lines. See, yeah, yes. <laughs> Sorry, see. See, yeah. Oh, by the way, <laughs> side note, we'll get to this in a second, but Dan's actually conquering Spanish lessons right now. So we will come back to that, hence why he said the word see. La verdad. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow, man. I uh, And how old? You're 19, yeah? Or you're 18 still? I just turned 19 before I deployed. So yeah, <sighs> You're so now. young, bro. Okay, yeah. so 19. And okay, so... Give us the experience of uh, landing 
in Iraq first? Oh man, I literally, I've just, I just, I'm almost finished with it, but I wrote a song. I'm writing, it's, it's called No Thanks, but it, the opening is 19 unsure with the new M4 and the foreign or domestics, what they made me swore. But when the bird touched down and the sands around, you realize, oh Lord, this ain't Virginia shores. <laughs> In the first of two tours, in the first of two tours in my nation's war, I'm kicking in these doors for the daily chores, but please don't parade me for it. They pay me for it. And your thanks is played more than you could lay the chords. So yeah, no, I, I'm 19 years old and the bird touched down, right? I just came from Virginia. The helicopter's in lands, or I can't even, or this is the green zone in Iraq. Get out, pitch black. I mean, just, I remember the smell very distinct. Um, Wake up the next morning. Yeah. Like, Six in the morning, I have somebody knock on my door pretty much. And um, he's like, you Rodriguez? I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, that's me. Sorry. Uh, he's like, uh, all right, well, you like to hunt or smoke? I'm like, I hunt. I don't smoke. He's like, well, you're going to start. And I like marble red. So <laughs> it's like, all right. <laughs> uh, this is my platoon sergeant. Brings me into his room. He's like, all right, you got to tell me something about yourself, son. We've got mission in an hour. If you die, I have nothing to tell your family. Like this old country boy from Georgia, just big old dip in his mouth. I'm sitting here at 19, like, oh God, I'm like this man's already already informing me that if I die, there's nothing to tell my family. Like, shit. So everything's just like really clicking in, right? Like you're just like unsettled. But I think what comes with sports for me and like a competitive nature and being on or having or being on edge or being in pressure some moments, right? They're two different fields, but in, in contrast, how the body reacts is kind of similar in a way. I was just kind of even kill. Like I wasn't showing that I was nervous or unsure of what the outcome would be or if I was going to win or lose the situation. But I, I was stoic, right? Like, you know, you're trying to be a good soldier and show this guy that's obviously combat vetted, tested, like, you know, it's come to find out he was on his like third deployment. He was in the initial invasion of Iraq, invasion of Iraq, Afghanistan, the third deployment again. Right. So you just have these old boys and you're trying to show, you know, that you can stand this pressure. And my first day in Iraq, I was on mission. I went out on mission. I mean, it was hectic, like nothing crazy happened, but within the first two months of me being in country, I'd seen, uh, fellow Americans die. People I knew, um, like people I considered friends, um, seeing, like bodies mutilated, right? Like it's not just like seeing somebody die. Like there's two guys in the truck with the same last name and you couldn't tell them apart. And one was black and one was white and you had no idea who was who. And that's just like one example of like being exposed to just the horrors of war and the fears and sirens of rockets coming in and out incoming. I mean, we called my base was Fab Rustamaya in Iraq and it was horrible. There's actually a move, another war movie. Ah, dang, what's the name of it? Um, it has like Tyler or one of my buddies, Scott Hayes is in it. But anyway, it's another war movie. It came out not too long ago. It was pretty good. I think it was like, I can't remember the name of it. Anyway. Is it on Netflix? Yeah. It was like a mainstream. It was like a pretty, I think it was like, no thanks or thank you for your service or something like that. It was like a few years oh, ago. Thank, is it thank you for your service? Is that the word? Tyler, what's his name? The kid, the drum, the kid, the drummer kid from that one movie, Whiplash, him. Oh yeah, I mean, dude. Oh my he, God. He, he's the main guy. And then my other buddy, Scott Hayes, we did the Netflix original together. That's how I know him. He invited me to the premiere. So I'm at the premiere of this movie. I know it's a war movie, so I'm like bracing myself. And 
opening credits, boom, Bob Rustemeyer, 2006. That is me. That, that was me. I was there. Bob Rustemeyer was my duty station wow. for fucking, or freaking you. Like, I was like, what the heck? So, yeah, so we called it Mortaritaville because we got hit so much with mortars and rockets. Like, we got pummeled, 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 pummeled. So, I mean, just not even being able to sleep and going out on mission. I did, and then, and then, so I was a replacement soldier, only supposed to do nine months, not only supposed to do, but I came in two months into the deployment. So this kid was killed. James was killed. The deployment was only two months. They'd only been in country for two months and then he was killed. I came a month later. So in timeline, the army does year tours, 12 months. The Marines only do six. That's why we say they only do half of what we do. So I'm in, I'm supposed to be in country (laughs) for, for a year, but three of those months have already expired because I was a replacement soldier. So I got in country knowing or believing that I had a nine month deployment month three. So halfway through six months for all these boys, three months for me, Bush says, Hey, we're going to make a push to get the last of Saddam's men out of Iraq. This is our highest casualty we've taken um, to date. I mean, we were getting hit. So, I mean, it was horrible. It was horrible. Instead of bringing in more soldiers, we're going to extend <laughs> the soldiers already there and make a last hurrah. So my, my unit did a 15 month deployment. I ended up doing a year, but they did 15 months. Um, like just crazy, crazy circumstances. We took a lot of casualties. I mean, and you're fighting in the streets of Baghdad. It's, 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 it's chaos to see a bomb go off and open up gunfire and you're turning to yell at somebody and you're seeing like kids picking up a soccer ball to like get the hell out of the street. And you're like, what the, like, it's, it's a wild concept of like how combat is in cities to, <clears throat> to mountains. Like we had a thing called mad minute where if you get blown up, bro, like you just spray for a minute, all trucks are spraying and anything. And so we used to just light up city blocks, man. It was, it was, it was really, 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 gnarly to experience at a young age and that's just mounted vehicles right that's when you're going to mission that's not even high value targets when you're completely knotted out black light everything you got a whole city block that you got to clear because at this point the technology the jtec the air force they get you within like a 10 meter grid 10 digit grid which is the in theory one meter away from your your target so roughly three feet which is pretty accurate but when I don't know if you've seen these city blocks or have ID, ideology of what some of Baghdad looks like, three feet in one location could be five different houses on a city block where they're all connected. So, you know, you're going down, kicking in doors, yelling, surefire, you know, your flashlights are on, like scaring the heck out of people. Most of, these, most of the families are multiple wives, tons of kids. Right. And you're looking for one guy. Like it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, scarring on the other end too. Right. The older I get, the more I think of just how, like how secure I am with my own life, you know, lock my door, like have my, my, my comfort in my bed. Right. <laughs> like that's somewhere mm-hmm. we all kind of find comfort, I would hope. <clears throat> and then to think like 30 armed men just coming through your rooftop or through your front door and, potentially not even looking for you. So, you know, it was a, it was a two way street of inflicting, you know, post-traumatic stress on one end and also having to endure it. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's, it's not, it's not refreshing to like have women and children like grabbing you and like yelling at you because you're, they're taking, you're taking their father away for 
potentially a crime, right? It's like some of it's speculative or you might be getting the wrong guy. That happened all the time. So there was a lot of time to just like, aside from combat, things that I was doing was, was just a mental, can I cuss? Is it okay if I cuss a little bit? Yeah, you can cuss, bro. It was a mental fuck, right? It was a mental bomb, right? It was just very difficult for me to process. And then, and then I go home, we get to go home and like, I wasn't ready for that because, uh, I, I mean, I, I think I told you guys last time in HPLT in Austin, I got home when I was 20. I'd only, tu- I just turned 20 years old the day I got in. So my birthday was J- is January 8th. I'm almost 34. Spoiler alert. We got, I got home January 1st. And so I had to wait a week until I even turned 20. And then it was another year until I could legally go out with my buddies for a beer or, you know, and in my mind, I was more terrified that I couldn't legally go buy a handgun and carry on me, even though I had just been a year with, you know, every rifle and every weapon system under the sun. And I came back to the States and, you know, I, I wanted to go out to, or to the store. I was terrified to go out without a weapon. Like I didn't realize how paralyzing to some degree post-traumatic stress is but when you come from extreme combat and you literally are sleeping with a rifle by you day in and day out and it is a means of survival like literally it's hard to let that go it's hard to do anything for a year (laughs) that becomes a you know a force of of security and you know just a stability factor and then rip that away and say everything's going to be okay and oh man, it's not. It was very difficult to adjust back to civilian life. Um, my unit was was really, really, really hit hard with um, <clears throat> acts of acts of violence and and uh, uh, what would be, negligence. I mean, we had I think so two. You, or you guys, sorry to interrupt. I'm just like trying to get my <laughs> bearing on this, but <clears throat> and you can talk about your negligence in a second, but. You weren't even legally allowed to drink nor hold a weapon at home. Not that I encourage that by any means, but I'm just saying that this is how young you were. Yet you had been sleeping like you had a pillow, but as a weapon. <laughs> um, and not to mention that, but like we've, there's study. I think actually, I think I talked to you about this at HPLT. There's studies out there that talk about <clears throat> these events that do take place. And the inability, how we don't have a proper sleep the night after those occurrences or these incidences mm-hmm. that then lead to the PTSD. So th- to put this in perspective for those listening in, the study shows that if you have a very solid sleep the night after these events take place, you are l- much less likely to succumb to PTSD as opposed to someone who, to be honest, in, in the, when these events take place, I don't know if I could actually sleep, but for those who can, it's obviously better for their ability to, to move on. But um, yeah, so if you don't sleep, your body's inability to deal with the PTSD is not as uh, yeah, I guess efficient, maybe not the right word, but uh, I guess you get my drift, man. But yeah, so you're like you're talking about negligence man yeah no i yeah it's i remember us talking about that though to kind of the whole sleeping thing yeah i'm with you i don't i'm always one after something happens i don't have the the bandwidth to really shut my eyes so i Mm. i definitely am a testament to um the foundation or the the inaugural effects of post-traumatic stress really being solidified as detrimental because (laughs) i don't sleep after (laughs) after events are are, are strugglesome, but, um, 
and and that played into me coming home, right? So that you know the the negligence came with me not losing sleep or thinking the only uh, medicine for me that you hear is oh yeah, just drink yourself to sleep, right? This is easy, like you. And th- and this other thing too, right? Like back to the marijuana train. Now that I'm a, I'm an advocate in the space, like you know, and on a, on a professional level these days, not like the 18 year old pothead. But there's nights when I would I think about it now, like it would be so helpful to give a soldier a joint or a type of cannabis or a cannabidiol or an edible after post after severe stress, because options for 19 year olds on a base is either drink themselves to sleep or or do nothing, right? And so the negligence that stem from me thinking my only options as a soldier who was struggling to sleep was to drink more and to go knock on my neighbor's door who was 21 and be like, Hey, can you go buy me some alcohol? Yeah, sure, buddy. Hey, obviously you know what I went through because I'm talking about my neighbor. You know, I can't sleep. You can't sleep. We've knocked on each other's doors twice this week. If I give you 300 bucks cash, do you mind just going to the store and buying me a handgun? Yeah, bro. No problem. Sure. Okay, cool. Sweet. Now I have a handgun. So now the pivot has been from I couldn't do something to now I'm illegally, <laughs> legally trying to comp or cope mm-hmm. with my fears and dilemmas and drinking myself. And, you know, common sense for us, alcohol, underage p- possession, post-traumatic stress is not a good uh, ingredient mixture for anything safe or anything like uh prosperous or, or right you know you get you see what i'm getting at it was just it just a bad a bad mix of a lot of things and that stemmed and that carried over not just to me but a lot of other soldiers um i, I think i was telling we had maybe two or three for sure two murders because my bunkmate in iraq is at, is in life in prison right now in colorado springs colorado he murdered a girl he murdered another uh group of guys i knew i, didn't, I knew one of them i didn't know him very well same thing manslaughter shot up Another, like another domestic violence was through the roof. I mean, it was just a, a plague of, 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 of nastiness. And, 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 and that, and these are other variables that why I'm, I wouldn't say anti-war, but I'm against putting our soldiers and our youth on the front lines of, of future or present conflicts. I think I, I, I stress now, you know, the democracy, the democracy standpoint, or sending in precise guerrilla tactics, train kids that are 18 or 19 years old to put a weapon in their hand and go overseas and then bring them back when they're 20 and adjust. It's, 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 it's chaos, man. It's really difficult. It's really, really hard. And there's a lot of, um, history of, of why even from Vietnam and the world wars, like, you know, you know, it's, it's a, it's a hard adjustment for a young kid's mind. And it really was difficult for my unit. And a lot of my friends suffered for it at this point. I think, I've lost eight friends to uh, to suicide, and I think three or four were in that year alone just when I came home from Iraq. And this isn't even my second deployment. This is still me at 20 years old with another two years left in the Army. <laughs> so that's, the world yeah, was kind crazy, of like, yeah, the world was very different. Um, yeah, and then I got orders to go to Afghanistan. And so, so like, <laughs> how, long, how, long were you at home, how long were you home for, man? Like, how long were you going through this cycle in itself? I was home for one year. I was home for one year. Okay. So, and is that is that typical, dude? Like, do you usually get like at least one year minimum back home, or is it? It can be like six weeks. No, that I would say that's probably the minimum one year. In gotcha. my experience, okay. because usually the unit, like the units, replace each other. In serious, so, it's pretty quick. That was pretty quick turnaround. Yeah. Wow. 
So okay, so you're you're back home and you you're going through this space. Did you did a part of you, and this can lead into the actual second question. But did a bit a part of you want to actually go back to your like what is your new normal? <laughs> and then I guess the second question is um, when you did get your orders, were you like ready to go? Mm. Uh, no, I was not ready. I don't know. I think I had. I don't think I ever was taken out of the first wave. Right. I, and, yeah. and some, in some real regard, like I was still feeling the effects, um, of Iraq. So mm. I was, because the other part is no, I was not ready to go back. Like I didn't have a desire, like, thank God, get me back. I can't sleep. I just want to go fight some. No, that wasn't like my mentality at all. It was really had been like, okay, I have more rank now. And, and said and seriously, seriously, it, there's more pressures to some degree because now I have soldiers underneath me. Now I have to be accountable for other people's actions and show more of a demeanor of, of not really of truly how I feel. I can't show that I can't express those feelings right now. I have to make sure everybody's got their weapons or nods, this, that. Hey, I used to tell my soldiers when they'd be talking about like, oh, I can't wait to go see some combat. I'd be like, hey, don't wish for it, you know? We see it, we see it, but don't wish for that shit. Not not around me. And that was my mentality. I had no desire to to wish upon action that I'd already seen. So that being said, I now feel that the human ability to adapt or the human adaptability is is super impressive, whether it's following diets or regiments or what have you. But it's the same in in environments of conflict or peace, for me at least. Like I go through this adjustment phase where yes, I'm mentally and physically wanting and, and not expecting, but wishing it, it goes this way. But if it doesn't, like, I'm not telling myself it doesn't, but it never did. I just had this innate ability to really just switch on that flip again of like, okay, like (laughs) Santa didn't give you what you wanted for Christmas. Now it's time to fight. Right. (laughs) We gotta, we gotta lace them up boys. So it was a very easy transition for me to go there with an even kill. I think it kind of plays into me not enjoy talking about myself. I don't, I don't ever want to boast up the situation or gas myself up when it's like, okay, I don't know what is in Taylor, what's next for the situation, what's to come. So I would rather just be, you know, on a, a positive energy, say that I'm, pre- know that I'm prepared, do what I can to keep, you know, this, this, this momentum going and whatever happens, happens. So, you know, I went there with the, a, a want of peace and just go over there. Let's make our presence known. Let's hopefully we take no casualties. And literally the first day I got to Afghanistan, <clears throat> I was on the first bird into what was our cop, cop Keating. And same thing, you always travel by night by helicopter because it's just very, it's very easy to take out a helicopter with an RPG. And so <clears throat> everything's at night. Same with Iraq, you land at night. Afghanistan, land at night. I have my nods on. I'm like, I can't see shit out here. Sun comes up, just mountains all around me. I'm just like, oh man, like, and just immediately sunk in. I was like, I am in a middle, bottom of fishbowl. Like just strategically speaking, this is <clears throat> not ideal. Um, so yeah, right off the bat, I knew I was going to be in a pretty tough situation um, strategically. And then within an hour of the day, sunlight coming up, I, we got attacked. I was in flip-flops. My very first firefight in Afghanistan, I was in flip-flops unloading on a machine gun. Just, just wow. like, well, didn't really give me time to <laughs> get my feet wet, but uh, all right, <laughs> I guess we're back. 
So, and that was it. I just, was- um, I just want to, I want to kind of set the tone here for the landscape a bit more. So what Dan's saying is, uh, his, his base was surrounded by mountains. Like effectively, if you are thinking of three peaks, uh, was it three, Dan, three peaks? Yeah, like the primary ones. I mean, it was and we were yeah. in a valley, but the three primary, yeah, three peaks, more or less. So, and you told me this. I learned from this from you. But effectively, um, when you think about it, you always want to have the higher ground, right? Because you can see oh, much better. So if you've got one hundred one, so if you're in a base camp and you've got mountains all around you, you are automatically at a disadvantage. So, and this was, you said it was Camp Keating was, that was called or? Yeah, Cop Keating. I mean, th- th- Keating. There's a reason the game is called King of the Mountain, not King of the Valley. Because, yeah. Cause he, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's, it's exactly. disadvantage at the bottom. <laughs> so you arriving at nighttime, not seeing this, unbeknown, get into your bunk, wake up in the morning and you've just gone, what are we dealing with? Like, this is, this is hectic. <laughs> this yeah, is hectic. And Absolutely. Absolutely. And so and from you, there, um, you go on. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say that um, I was just going to say that from visually me putting myself in perspective, never being in anything remotely like holding a handgun or anything, but where you've been from and knowing that you're in a position where there are, there is battle going on automatically. That's to some degree morale must be low. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, because, sorry, one second. Um, yeah, it, because like you have to understand like it's super low, but you're also replacing like when we went into Afghanistan, this was OIFX, like 10. So this is 2009. So we invaded Afghanistan in 2001, right after the twin towers in september 11th so this base was established in like 2003 or something like that so we were we were eight years rotation in there so you have the feeling of whoa this is stupid but then you also have the arrogance of we're the best army in the world we'll be all right Mm. right and so that that and that also plays a lot into the tragedy of this because there was negligence of it being established there put there it had purpose at one point it had lookouts and sister platoons as the base was building outward, right? But once we put footholds in the country, there was really no means for us to be there other than to be in the way of conflict, to be right, to be a deterrent, or just mm. to serve as a purpose to fight, to be a force out there. But as the conflict grew bigger, you know, we we're opening up more bases. We expand over the entire country. You, you these little outposts that have been eight, nine years old that nobody hears about. You just got 50 Americans out there. They'll be all right. We'll get them in a, if, if, if worst case scenario, we can get them in Apache in an hour. Right. And that, and, and, and to some people, that's all you need. And really in today's modern age, that's all you need. (laughs) But that one sliver, when you get overrun by forces that haven't been seen since Vietnam or world war two on us forces, it's, you know, those boys knew that we were outside of the reach of our own guns. They knew that we were vulnerable in the Valley. They knew that if, you know, for six years, they'd been watching our, our routines and everything go and all, you know, okay, 
if we hit them here, it takes them this long to get a bird here. Okay. You know, we know that this is the middle of these new guys deployment. They're a half capacity right now. They probably only got 30 or 40 guys on the base. All right, let's, let's get them. And so all of this, I would say lax mentality to some degree from the American standpoint of us being there, not having initiative, um, not having enough supply, not having enough manpower and really having no mission. (laughs) It was just a, we were sitting ducks. We were literally sitting ducks at the bottom of a valley on a stream. And it just made for a, 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 I wouldn't say an easy, easy target, but an easy opportunity. And so, yeah. So you were telling me, you were telling me you, how many days were you in, uh, cop I was there for five months, five months. And how many, so it's like, well, it's 150 days of the 150 odd days. How many days were you in battle? I probably say we averaged three fire, three firefights a week, three attacks a week. Sometimes we got attacked every day. So then that, and that's me saying average because there's times where we went every day in the, every day a week, every day for a week, morning and night get hit. And then we would go a week without getting hit or we get hit really hard three days at a time. And then we go three days. Without getting hit. So on average timeline, I would say we averaged three times a week. Like that was really what it boiled down to. I've probably been in, I would tell people I've been in close to about a hundred firefights on, and like on a true number, like I've been in triple digit firefights. Just so that's like <laughs> just running out 20 years fire. old. <laughs> yeah, man, it's nuts, eh? So you're 20 <laughs> years old and you've already been in 100-something firefights. So talk talk us through like some of the most hectic experiences of uh, being in this uh, outpost. Uh, yeah, and like to not, again, not to gas me up, but like, like fire, 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 fire. Bro, I've been like, I'm talking like thousands of rounds. Like I've melted mm. barrels on 240s, not just like ping, ping, no, like. I'm letting loose. Yeah, you're talking that. when you say you melt barrels, <laughs> you've got the big gun that's attached to a I'm main station. Shooting, I'm literally shooting mortars. We have AT4s, which are, you know, the shoulder fired. AT4 stands for anti tank. Like I'm shooting AT4s, letting off 120 millimeter mortars. You know, I was long range marksman mm-hmm. sniper school. I had a sniper rifle out there with me. Like, bro, we got picked. We were getting sniper fire. I was sitting up there in the hooch scanning with three other snipers looking to pick somebody off. Like we were really fighting out there. Like it wasn't just some, it was wild. It was really, really wild. So I would say we didn't really get like letters or proper equipment, right? A lot of people get sent like goodies and all this. We got sent ammunition solely. Like we didn't mm-hmm. have like electricity for almost three months of our stint there, or it was solely the electricity and generators was only for the talk, which is the communications TOC stands for like, or TOC talk is like something, something communication. That was the only thing that had um, mandatory power. So everything else at night, you know, we were filling up, we were saving rainwater in ammo buckets. And then you, you know, ch- cut off the top of a plastic bottle as a cup. And you're just sitting there scooping out water out of ammo cans with a bar of soap, <laughs> you know, washing yourself in the, in the wow. desert. You're right. And you're slotting, you're raising chickens and goats. Like they're goats, herders. You're buying goats for like, you know, five us dollars from, from a herder and slaughtering your stuff. Sometimes you get one meal in the morning. If you didn't get attacked, right. If you get attacked, the cook can't cook. The cook is in full battle rattle with it back to the whole, basic training everybody's knows the basics when you go into the army as a cook you're not expecting to be on the front lines 
but yeah. you could damn well be attached to a unit who was on the front lines and you better know how to fight. And we had a cook mm-hmm. that was pretty, pretty sound. So we, even our cook, like if we get hit, our cook isn't just staying in the kitchen. Like, Oh, well, hopefully these guys go away soon. Funny Taliban, you know, you know, shucks you guys. No, that guy is, <laughs> he's, he's, everything drops for the cook and he's got his rifle and his K pot on. He's, you know, he has a hooch in the kitchen where he's looking out shooting. So everybody, everybody's fighting type thing. Okay. So <laughs> just to bring everyone, if you've ever seen the movie, uh, and I do recommend it because when Dan was telling me the story of this location, it sounded really familiar, but I'd never actually, I'd, I'd, I was like, clearly I haven't been there. Um, I don't know where I've seen it. I've never met Dan before. I don't think I've, um, been fortunate to hear his story yet. So where have I seen what he's talking about? And lo and behold, he, uh, his, this, this, uh, this, you know, K- Cop Keating was actually, um, and particularly one battle. Do you know, maybe you tell the story of the battle. Um, that might be more accurate and then we can talk through the, the latter stages of my, uh, <laughs> my recent point. No. Yeah. So <clears throat> as the, you know, as I'm kind of, giving you the context of the vulnerability and this being my second tour and also the beginning of the podcast, how the recognition stemmed from my Afghanistan employment, all of these things that I've been mentioning ultimately led up to what is now known as the bloodiest battle ever in the war in Afghanistan. Now it it used to be, is this is the bloodiest battle ever or to date, but now that it's no more, this is the bloodiest battle ever in the war in Afghanistan. And so I was, Station on combat outpost Keating. Combat outpost Keating. It was roughly fifty Americans, and on this day of October third, we had roughly around forty or so, I would say, give or take. Um, yeah, and we were overrun completely for about a month and a half. We had been getting ICOM chatter, which is when they talk back and forth on the walkie-talkies, the Taliban, and we were keep hearing, "We have three hundred plus soldiers. We're going to overrun." Blah blah blah. And it would be week in and week out. And we'd go up and get on our machine guns and be up all night. Nothing happened. And so after about a month, it was just every time they'd attack us, they'd also say, we killed five Americans, uh, very successful, you know, whatever. And you're like, this isn't true. So you you just start getting the idea that they're, they really don't know where each other's, the one another are at. They're just giving each other good praise and saying what they want to hear to continue the spirits and the fight, blah, blah, blah. 300, 300 Taliban soldiers plus 300, 400 Taliban. No, that's impossible. Like where in the heck is 400 Taliban soldiers coming from? That's like, nobody's seen that before. Right? Like that's not, it's not fathomable. starts becoming a running joke until the morning of October 3rd. I wake up like five thirty, six in the morning. I'm walking down. I got a pistol on me cause I have to bring up two plates of food for me and my other guy, another dude in the hooch and Thompson, my other, my buddy Thompson, there's three of us. And, um, yeah, I'm downstairs on the computer for maybe, maybe three or four minutes. I had just taken off. Like I got to the level of comfort. Like you always keep your vest on, but I had just taken off my hel- helmet, like put my pistol down, like satellite communications. So you're waiting for, you know, the website or whatever. I'm probably getting on like Facebook or something at this point. And before I can even log on, just these rockets, just boom, 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 like dang, like two or three, like two or three hit, like kind of let it cess. I'm like, okay. Immediately putting on my helmet, like getting my boom, boom, three, four more coming. I'm like, what the hell? Like, all right, we're getting hit pretty good. So I charge my nine mil and I like come out the door, just boom, just, just shaking. Just like everything. I'm like, damn, like, all right. I got to get to my position. So I kind of like charge my nine mil. I run out 
run out around the corner and come out around a building. <clears throat> it's called the fatal funnel is when, you know, which you really have to be careful for. It's because, you know, if you're a machine gun, you know, people can only come out of certain spots, whether it's a door, a hallway or between two buildings. So when you have the advantage, you find those fatal funnels as a machine gun nest and you just stay on it and you just light up the alleys because you never know, because they knew we were going to come out running. And so I was the very first person to come out of the hooches that day. Um, and I don't know how I lived. I came around the corner and I just started running and I had no idea how many fighters were there, what was going on. Um, but I just immediately, I tell people I had had the impression that it was raining because everything's kind of covered like the, like these camo tarps, like there's, you know, you see them like in the movies, like they cover up like fields of like illegal drugs, like, you know, those like canopy tarps, like meshed into the mountains. Right. So the bottom of our base is all that. So you really can't see into the mountains until you break the cover of that. And so I'm running under this thing and I'm like seeing the exit of the light. And I'm like, I don't remember raining. Like I just see dirt flop, like flying up everywhere. And as soon as I run through the fatal funnel, I'm just like, son of a, something just bit me <laughs> type not that this is me thinking in real life there and i look down like I'm like what the hell was that and i see blood coming from my leg and immediately hits me i'm like that was a rock that was a ricochet like that like you know when you think of an like just a scenario like instant like you know exactly what's going on before you can like even it, it takes you longer to say what you actually know is happening <laughs> right it was one of those moments where as soon as it hit me i knew Oh shit, this isn't rain. I'm getting shot at. <clears throat> I'm somebody's shooting at me. <laughs> like, right? All this is like registering in a split second. And I look up to like, right? Like, okay, I'm at the bottom. So somebody's shooting down at me. And as soon as I look up, man, oh my gosh, like I'm getting chills just even like remembering it. It was just muzzle. Like, as I'm talking, this is the side of a mountain. Like, this is a side of a mountain and a base is out there. And the entire side of a mountain, which is a switchback, they call it like, where they make the trails. If you ever see like the goat trails, they like zigzag back and forth. Those They call those switchbacks and they kind of like just, so it's a, just a easier incline up the mountain as you go through it and the entire switchback. So an entire side of a mountain, every, it looked like every 10 feet or three feet, I was just seeing muzzle flash, like just a line of it, like coming down the mountain. And I just remember looking and be like, like now I just like, I didn't think it was real. I just was like, what the, like, what? And I just had my pistol on me and I was just zigzagging because they teach you in basic, don't run in a straight line, like once you're being shot at. So I'm zigzagging and I'm just shooting. And all I have is a nine mil. I'm just shooting a nine mil into the mountains. It's absolutely hopeless. Maybe I hit one. It's a one in a billion shot. I'm, I'll be the first one to tell you I probably did not, but I wasn't going to go down without shooting. And I'm sitting here shooting a nine mil at targets that are three, two football fields away from me coming down the mountain at me. So again, the round of itself isn't even designed to go that far <laughs> and I have nothing else, but I'm just sitting there shooting into the mountain stop, just like, like just zigzagging and I'm just whizzing bullets are whizzing past me. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been shot at, but they crack, man, like whack, they just snap past you. Like just, you don't want to be hit by it. Just tell you that. So everything's fucking, sorry, whizzing past me, whizzing past me. I'm running and there's one truck, like there's one truck between me and my fighting position <clears throat> and my buddy, um, Mace, he was killed, but I seen him, I had seen him that morning on the truck and we had a quick word. I was like, what's up, what's up? And so I'm yelling his name cause I think he's still in the truck, but unbeknownst to me, like 30 minutes before the fight, um, two soldiers had switched out another. So another buddy was actually gunning the truck and Mace had went inside. He went back to sleep. Well, 
he awoke at this time. So I'm yelling, thinking my buddy Mace is in the turret. I'm like, Mace, Mace, like friendly. Cause he's just, I just see this 50 cow, like just rocking. He's just spraying the mountain and I'm just running behind it, like yelling, Mace, friendly, friendly, friendly. And as soon as I get to the truck, this RPG just smashes, just boom, blows me over. Like I get blown into the truck. I'm like laying down, like, like I'm like kind of like getting my bearings, like as I'm like just like flustered. I have my pistol still. And I just see like the 50 cal shells falling off <laughs> the roof of the Humvee. Like it was just so many shells. Like I, I don't know if y'all have this in Australia, but like we have this thing called when I was a kid, we had Chuck E. Cheese. It's like these, pretty much it's a place where you take your kid for their birthday. You give them a bunch of tokens. You can win these tickets and you get prizes, right? That's the gist of it. But they had this game where you could like try to win more tokens if you threw one token in and then it like it pushes all the coins to the end. And if you like get the right coin, it can like, you know, pushes all these coins out. Well, I remember like having this feeling of like, thinking that's what it was looking like the 50 cal shells <laughs> coming off this truck like it was like this little game as a Chuck E. cheese game where it's like just the just so many shells were falling from the 50 cal it was just like pushing them off the humvee and just landing right like right by me like piping hot and so i'm like getting myself together i roll over <clears throat> get up check my mag i got like two three shots left i keep i come running up just pull, pull, just keep shooting oh not to mention I think I see my friend get shot in the head. So I'm looking up, like just kind of in this daze, like catching my bearing, like I'm ears are ringing and I just see his head go up like, boom, and the 50 cow kind of snap up in the thing. And I just see him drop in the turret. And as soon as he dropped, I was like, okay, he's dead. I got to go. I got to get out of here. So I get up again and I take off running again. I like finish out my run. I probably had like another 50, 60 yards up ammo cans. I'm this is again all uphill. So <clears throat> when you come like like my fighting position was still at the bottom of the mountain, but more up than where the dining hall was at. So all of my run was uphill. <clears throat> and the final last bit of it was edged like carved out in the mountains with ammo cans. We had our own little switchback ammo cans to get into the mountain where the fighting position was and then be isolated from everybody else around us. So I was like literally holding down the east side of a base with another truck that I just had come from that I just seen got destroyed. And I thought my friend just got shot. Luckily he did not die. The bullet hit his head and stayed in his K pot. He still has it. Like it's literally halfway through his helmet. I don't know. I didn't anyway. So that's another story. <clears throat> so I'm me and another truck are just the only two fighting on the side. I get up to my position, like thinking I'm the only, I'm the last stance of defense. Like I know it's behind me. The LRAS two is done. I have my machine gun here. I got about a thousand rounds on me. <clears throat> I'm sitting there trying to like catch my breath and my buddy Thompson is coming out. Now, mind you, I just gave you this ordeal, but this is literally probably the first 90 seconds to four minutes of the fight. Like this is just the initial con. I mean, just getting just hammered. We see getting rail, right? We were getting hammered. Just the initial, initial push is the most important, especially when you're trying to overrun somebody. It's just complete force, show a force wave after wave don't give them t a chance to breathe type thing and so i mean there's these rounds where it's coming in i'm just like sitting there trying to catch my breath and thompson's coming out like his boots are untied like you know we would sleep with our socks on so he's literally by the time he gets out of bed puts his boots on had puts all his full battle rattle on gets his rifle and you know gets an idea of the conversation or the the gist of it and then comes running out to fight 
I was coming up at the same time. So in that 90 second window process to four minutes, whatever it was, I finally get to my fighting position and Thompson's finally like ready to fight. And like, he sees me like blood coming out. I remember him like scanning me and I'm like, <clears throat> just been blown up by an RPG, got sh- bullet fragment in my leg or a rock in my leg, something. I have no ammo. I'm literally holding my nine mil with no r- rounds in it. And I just yell at him. I just go, I just yell, switchbacks, switchbacks, switchbacks. And he, and we give each other a look where we didn't have to really, I didn't have to say, Hey, this is bad. <laughs> like he, he looked at me and it was immediately like, this is bad. Like we're getting hit bad. And so as soon as I just said switchbacks, I was like, literally had my hands on my knees, like trying to catch my breath. Like, okay, I'm here. Let's fight. Takes two steps in front of me, like right in front of me. And I just seen his rifle just hit the ground, like, boom, like just the, the no, not the barrel of it. And for those who are like military or own guns, like it's just a huge no, no. Your, your barrel never touches the ground. Like where the bullet comes out of the barrel, the end of the barrel, it never touches the ground. You can get a rock stuck in it. It's just, it's just the sound doesn't even sound good. It's just something you don't do. And I just remember just seeing out of the corner of my eye, just his rifle, just, just, you know, his hand, let it go. And just like from his side, just, just the noise, the sound just hit and then fell. <clears throat> and I just, I knew it. I knew before he hit the ground more or less when I saw his body, like, it was just like the sequence of what was playing that you just don't fall like that. And so, yeah, before I could even get on my machine gun, I had to flip him over to see, you know, what to assess the casualty. And he had been hit in his head and it was, it was pretty bad. So he dropped right in front of me. Um, and then I, I kind of snapped to a degree. I just, just, I just got on my machine gun and I just started spraying. I just started spraying, 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 spraying. And uh, yeah, it was turned into almost 18 hour firefight. I threw over 40 grenades. I had a tub full of grenades, a Mark 19 jug full of grenades. I threw shotgun. We were trying to set off claymores. Um, I mean, it was, it was hectic. It was about an 18 hour duration, an entire day. Uh, eight Americans were killed. 22 were wounded. I was one of the 22 wounded. I was later, um, took another ricochet of sort to my back of my shoulder. And then I took two RPGs, uh, at different times. I took shrapnel to my neck and shrapnel another time to my other leg. So I walked out with shrapnel in my neck, legs, arms, and bullet fragments in my shoulder. Um, and yeah, eight of my friends were killed. So it's just this crazy day and, you know, halfway through my deployment, not to jump ahead, but you know, I still had six months left in country. So I just survived this extreme conflict. And then I didn't even get a chance to really exhale. I was like, Oh, you're, you got more of this left, but that's kind of, this is, um, Go ahead. This, sorry, man. It's just like this puts a lot of things into perspective on life, doesn't it? When you're having a bad day or something like that, like, and and I don't know if you um, actually noted this too much, but Thompson was your best friend. Like he was your best friend, the guy that you were closest with. He was the the one that you were like in the same, you know, I guess the same weaponry yeah. with. You guys were both on mortars, right? You've been on mortars together. Yeah, yeah. We uh, to kind of to kind of jump back to when I was telling you of, you know, your responsibilities change your rank, you get more rank, you get soldiers underneath you. He was one of my soldiers. So he was brand new into the army, 
just a few mm-hmm. months in before this was his first deployment. You know, there were a lot of things that he endured in his own life, you know, face homelessness, not a great childhood, you know, just, uh, just, I mean, the spirit of an absolute God, like, I mean, the kid was an absolute gem of a person, you know, and it's unfortunate the way he fell or the system that he fell in, not a lot of people got to see his, his good side or, or what joy he could bring to people's lives. But yeah, he was just, he was my buddy, um, had struggles in his own life, but, you know, sitting up there on the mountaintop when you're with a guy who's face homeless at like 15 years old and didn't have where to go and sitting on a mountaintop smoking a cigarette was just like a new thrill to him. So he was just one of those beacons of energy that just put things in perspective was always a good, was just a good dude was appreciative to like be there, which is a really weird, you know, philosophy to have or a a weird mentality to have. Like you're there for a cause, you're there for something, but he was just happy to not be homeless or to not, you know, do something. Right. So it just, he was just this, he was just this really, really beautiful soul um, that had an unfortunate upbringing and, you know, he was looking for something positive. He was going to, after the military, he was going to use his uh, schooling to get, you know, certified in a, you know, you don't have to go to a four year university after you're, after after the army, you can use it for trade school or something else. So he's going to get a trade, go back, live his life, you know, have something to, to build stability off of. And, uh, you know, he was, he was killed. He was killed in front of me. He was a really, really good dude. Dude, I, I couldn't imagine. I I just, I can't, I legitimately cannot, I can't comprehend war. I can't comprehend gunfights and I definitely cannot comprehend watching someone let alone someone I'm so close to um fall right next to me um I just yeah it's so hard to fathom dude like it really is and 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 I remember you do you'll probably bring this up in a second but you guys you guys go through a conversation um previously to this day that instigates your next couple of steps but before we get to that i want to make note of my point earlier so if you listeners want to see this battle um it's documented pretty well in the movie known as the outpost on netflix uh it's got orlando bloom in it it's got uh some pretty amazing actors and it's also got a very special actor in it who plays himself um which we'll get to a little bit down the line so yeah, pretty big deal. Pretty big deal. Um, so, man, what was the conversation that you and you and Thompson had? It would just kind of. I mean, we had many, but the one that really yeah. sparked and is is meaningful is um, I told him what I wanted to do. Kind of hashing back on what we would encourage each other or to aspire to be, or you know, you you get everybody's background and and resume when you that's all you have to talk to, especially after firefights or just hours on guard, you know, you, you hear about, you know, exes and jobs and what you want to do and this. And mine was always, man, I wish I could go back and play football. I wish I could, I knew more about NCAA regulations and I could, you know, get my grades right and have, could have played and this, that, and then it dawns and I was like, man, I still have all my eligibility. And I would tell him, I was like, yo, when I get out of this, I'm gonna try to walk on, play football, potentially use my education He's like, bro, that'd be amazing. Like, dude, that'd be so cool for you to go back. Like, blah, blah, blah. And it was just like, those were the, those were the inspirational points of throwing your ideas out there and having that, having that yes man. Right. But not, but not a yes man who didn't believe in you. A yes man who just almost so naive in a way 
that it was, that was, that it was like encouragingly positive, if that makes sense. Like <laughs> you just like kind of throw it to yeah. a guy who didn't know the, he didn't, he didn't know the process of what it take to play football or this, like that wasn't his trajectory, but to him, Oh, you just went to war and then went to play football. Hell yeah. That's cool, man, dude, do it. That would be sick. And it was just like, you know, those were the conversations that led to, all right, man. Yeah. I promise you like, yeah, I'm, I'm promising you one day. Like I'm going to get it. We make it out of here, bro. I promise you I'm, I'm, I'm going to go play. He's like, all right, bet, 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 bet. You know, one of those. And so fast forward, like he was killed and fast forward from that, like, you know, and got out. I made it through the rest of that deployment. Um, fortunately alive and, uh, it was hectic, but after that deployment, I said no more with the army. I was like, I'm, I'm done. Um, this is not my, um, career choice for the next, because in the military it's 20 years and then you can retire. So a lot of people go in at 18 and they retire at 38, get their schooling and then go on, have a, you know, another career from 40 to whatever. And that at some point I thought might have been a potential. I wanted to go special forces. I wanted to be an elite soldier and, 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 you know, be creme de la creme. Um, but after that fight, uh, uh-uh, nope. I was like, you know what? I'm 20 years old. I think I'm going to try to live my twenties out. <laughs> that's this, that's, that's the end of, that's the end of the quote. I'm going to try to live my twenties out. <laughs> so it was very, it was a very quick decision or of me knowing once I got boots back in country, yeah, America is not perfect, but I knew I did not want to go back over to Iraq or Afghanistan or be part of the military anymore um, at that point. So got out and uh, yeah, yeah, I was um, kind of back on the same road when I got home from, from Iraq <clears throat> before the promise was kept or all of this, um, you know, motivational and pos- positivity. I again went down some really, really low struggles, uh, in points where I didn't have many outs, um, at that point mentally, except for taking my own life or taking myself out. So I struggled going back home, excuse me, into my same bedroom with all my same posters, all my same things from four years ago. And this is the house that my father passed. He had a heart attack in the bedroom in you know, in the, in our, my parents' bedroom. So going back to a place that had not changed where my father had died and all this, just this, this, I wouldn't say this negativity, but just these, these negative memories to some extent, right? Like these, these low points, it was just, it was almost a push. It was, it was like this environment pushing me down one road. Like, like, you know, know, why are you back here? What are you doing? You have no purpose. Like, you know, you got to wait. And this is the other thing I I got out in October, like September, October, I had to wait three months until my GI bill kicked in and I could go to school. So I was in this limbo stage for four months, three and a half months removed from war, six months, eight months removed from the bloodiest battle ever. And I'm sitting in my, my room like, okay, what now? (laughs) It was a really, it was a really, uh, difficult, difficult time to adjust. Um, and like I said, almost took my life, um, did not. And it was because I remember that promise. I remember that, that, that conversation. And that's what I really held on to, um, going forward and changing my diet, changing my, uh, my mindset. And it was, I had an addiction to live out this promise. And, you know, I, I tell myself, I would tell myself, I tell my, I tell people, I would tell myself and still do at times if I don't 
at least try or to do something positive with my life, right? There's so much negativity for more. There's so much loss. If I don't try to achieve what I want to in my life or what I believe I'm capable of, then the Taliban wins. Then my friends died in vain. And that really mm-hmm. became an anchor or a staple to what I did not want to have weighing over me as I went on in life or I have to go speak at, you know, and this is hypothetical. If I have to go speak at some event in 20 years, right? you know, remembering my friends, like what, what's the journey going to be like? Will they have been proud of me or, or is it just some, was I, did I come home from their loss or from this loss that their family took that, you know, our country took to some extent? Am I coming home and just burying that? Or am I letting that fuel me and uplifting that to some degree of why I'm going to be better of why I'm going to try to try to do something different and positive and yeah, life sucks and there's struggles and there's October 3rds and I've been under fire hundreds of times, but I just try to find the positive <laughs> and, uh, you know, believe in myself as cliche as it is, but know what I want to achieve in this life. And now my perspective is just so different in terms of what I'm grateful for, where I try to push myself, what I want to achieve. And I also have a spectrum of how bad it can be and also have a spectrum of how how damaging hurt and, and, and real struggles can be in life. And that, you know, losing a son, losing a father, right. I'm now at the point where there's kids that I saw born who never saw their father return, who are now graduating high school. So now I'm in a, it's another wave, right. It's another wave of post-traumatic stress or, 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 or a remembrance of how generationally damaging war can be. So it isn't something that I just left behind and I'm moving on with my life. No, it's a continuance reminder of why I'm trying to accomplish so much or why I have bigger goals. And I think the majority of people, right? Like, again, what I've accomplished, these are all dreams and stuff that I I really wanted to live out and I'm still trying to. And I have a push and a catalyst (laughs) behind me of why I'm trying to give more effort or it just seems like it's that much more incredible because I went through something so horrific. But in reality, I don't really feel I'm any different than anybody. I just survived an extreme circumstance to talk about it, right? So um, it's it's this wild uh, emotional mix at times to bear the baggage of being a patriot and people calling you a hero, even though I don't really feel heroic. And then also trying to live in memory of somebody who you do feel is heroic, who will never see what you accomplish in life, who will never be there to congratulate you. But for me, like just knowing that I'm living and trying to do it in a better way or to to let my friends know and my friend's family know, like, hey, like I'm going to keep going as hard as I can just so y'all know that your, your sons didn't die in vain, right? Like. So it's just like kind of an idea and I try to keep myself in that, in that realm of like, all right, there's more to be had. You know what I'm saying? Dude, I think it's very honorable that you, I mean, I know it would have been really hard and still is probably, but the, um, you know, the sheer things that you were talking with Thompson about, right. And you're like, I'm, I'm, if I get out of this, this is what I want to do. And, that, you know, through sheer determination and maybe just that thought of not wanting to let other people down that are so close to you who would, in the opposite situation, probably want to do the same. Um, you did it. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like I, I, I find that unbelievable. And so 
you know, I've, I've always been someone who says, do things for yourself. Like I really do. Like I always say, like, you know, doesn't matter what anyone says, do them for yourself. That's my personal perspective. I've never been in a situation where you have, where you could potentially be even more motivated by the fact of, you know, what you've uh, come across and had to deal with. So, but in saying that, you you have and continue to do every single day, right? And so this is where the first part of, I guess, uh, your inspiring story almost <laughs> ends. And then the next part of your inspiring story is like, you know, part two. And I want to make it clear, bro, you, you said something at the start that I took a note of, like, you know, you're, you're finding a way so that your past moments don't, defy that you know your inspiration but you want to continue to build on other things that will be your inspiration in the future so there's three moments that you talk about that in the past um when you and i hung out and all three of those are inspiring most of us have maybe one moment you've created a foundation with that moment you just had and you're about to springboard onto something else <laughs> and then that moment you're about to springboard onto something else so you know you're going to go into it but for you to know I think it's so important for you to realize that you're continuing to write new chapters in your life and each new chapter is inspiring. So don't feel as if it's caught on one moment because for me it's like we're an hour and 30 into this podcast and my concern is not the story you are, you know, not making sure that you feel that you're inspired. My, my concern is I'm not going to have enough time to tell the amount of stories that are inspiring. <laughs> so, um, mate, so with that being said, bro, like, yes, you're back. Um, back. and I'm trying to, I'm trying to be sensitive to the situation, but I'm really no. um, pumped to hear how you told your next part of your chapter. Ah, uh, man, it's, it kind of, it plays into, I think your motto as well, because I, I will be the first to tell you, I also, do things for myself in, in that mentality. But it has also been extremely beneficial for me and kind of other draw cards, knowing that what I want, like these are also my dreams, right? I'm playing, I wanted to play football my entire life. I wanted to play in the NFL my entire life. So yes, Thompson, the promise was something that pulled me onto another level or gave me more inspiration. But at the end of the day, I wanted to also accomplish those goals for myself. And it's because I, what I wanted to do. So I, I just want to harp on that. That is, that's an extremely important mentality to carry um, and a mantra to have, you know, do things for yourself because it's important to accomplish what you want to for yourself. But it helped for me having shared those, you know, in confidence with, with a peer and then him obviously not make it out to see me fulfill it. And that was just an old, just a different level of, of uh, motivation and perseverance on, onto my own journey, knowing that, Hey, you know, I got a buddy who, who's not with me, but he's going to keep me going through this type thing. So that's kind of, it was, a, it was, a, it was, a, it was a double horsed engine there with a desire to want to accomplish it. And also having somebody there that believed in you, that wasn't going to be there with you on the finish line. So it was a really weird um, push as well. So but yeah, no, I, uh, <laughs> are we talking about acting or are we going into football, more football or football? Yeah. Football, football, it's football, right? Dude, you tell me in the chronological order of your life, at this point in your life, man, I think every day is a new story by the sounds <laughs> of it. Just, uh, I'm listening very intently. I'm like, this is, I feel like I listen to an audio book and I listen to my podcast, right? I, I, I'd like just to you know, make sure my sound's okay and all that kind of stuff. But 
Mate, I'm, uh, this is like watching a movie through my ears. <laughs> so please, please continue on. And I know we've only got a few, uh, we've got 20 minutes, man. So, um, but yeah, just tell the story as best as you can. Yes, chronologically. Uh, I had a promise to, to keep. And so in this timeline, you know, holding on to this promise, I started working out, working out. Three months go by, I start school. I'm in a community college, um, working out every single day. And my best friend comes to me. He's like, man, like you're transforming. Like, you know, and I, I told myself and my friends that I wasn't, I quit drinking and back to the story of Iraq and home. Like I was, I drank and I, you know, then I got out of the army as a Southern boy. Like, oh yeah. Like drink beer. And you know, that was just a mentality, like have a beer with everything, need a beer after the day. And then I went to, no, I'm not drinking anymore or anything. My friend's like, you're crazy. And then it became a bet, like who can get Daniel to drink? And then Daniel was always the DD. And then like six months in, they were like, okay, this is real. My buddy's like, my friend, my my friend, my cousin just start, started a production company. He's super talented. Um, I told him about you and that you're trying to make a, a video. Like, I think you guys should, should meet up. So meet up with my best friend's cousin. He's, uh, he's one of my good friends now. Told him my idea, what I wanted to do. He's like, listen, I want to use your war footage because I had over like 17 hours of combat footage that I had recorded myself. And he's like, you know, I want to tell your story and let these college coaches know that you have just haven't been doing nothing. And so we put together my old highlight videos from high school, put some war footage in there and kind of told my spiel like, hey, you know, my name's Daniel. Um, I'm probably the biggest deal out here. No, <laughs> I'm undersized. <laughs> in reality, the video should have been like, I'm undersized. I've been played in five years. Uh, this is a dream. What's good. <laughs> but it was like, you know, a very well 30 for 30 put together. Like, you know, it was beautifully done, edited coloring. Like my, you know, my buddies study this, like this is a passion. So three days later, he gives me back the first edit of this thing. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm inspired watching this thing. Like what the hell? Mm. And so I end up putting this thing on YouTube and I had no idea what the term viral meant. I didn't know this was, this was 2010 YouTube. So this was like pre, like everybody's got good content or every smartphone takes good content type thing. Right. Like you had to like, when you had good content back in 2010, like it stood out like, right. And so I had like good content, like this video was professionally made, um, as a recruitment video. When you, if you can think of any high school highlight you've ever seen, it's usually just that a high school gym or a high school field, X's and O's, a green light and some cheesy rap song in the background, you know, right? Like <clears throat> that, that's usually your ideal highlight tape. Mine was like story, war footage, beautiful autumn day or Thanksgiving day in Virginia, right? Like it was just, it was just a cinematic gem. And um, I mean, it cost me my last penny and this thing, <laughs> this thing went off and it went viral. And I ended up like within a week of, a week of, posting it, it, I think it had over a million views and I had to take it down because I was getting thousands of messages, voicemail, texts, emails. I was getting letters in the mail. People were sending me like proteins and like just crazy stuff. Cause at the end of the recruitment video, I'd put all my personal information, even my height and weight, height, weight, date of birth, <laughs> email, where I live. Cause I thought only college coaches were going to see it. I didn't, didn't know how the share button worked or this is the first video I've ever uploaded to YouTube. Like I started a YouTube page to put this video up there. And so like this goes off. Next thing I know I'm getting flown up to like CBS and I did like, um, uh, like a Fox and friends. I did CNN. Well, the lead, the, the main guy for CNN, Jake Tapper, he, the book who the outpost is both based off of. He's a good buddy of mine flew me up 
Dan Rather, like the legend Dan Rather came to my high school and did like an interview, like me, my coaches, like this, this just started taking off with all this like momentum. And I had about 150 schools, colleges reach out to me and like, we're like, Hey, like, we'd like to offer you, like, can you send us your transcripts, blah, blah, blah. And through that process, Clemson university in South Carolina, I just, I remember watching a game really wasn't a big college football, like fan. I, I like Virginia tech. I remember watching a game. They beat Auburn some years ago. And I just remember watch, just seeing this highlight of the head coach, my ex head coach, him being so passionate on the field. I'm like, man, that guy would be pretty exciting to play for. And then like maybe like three weeks later or something like that, I got an email from, <laughs> from Dabo Sweeney, like, Hey, just saw your recruitment video. I'd love to talk to you about a walk on. And I was in class at a community college. I literally stood up and walked out of class. Like it was like four minutes into class, sat down, obviously, you know, on my phone type thing, like checking my syllabus, but the email comes through and it's like, Oh my gosh, it's like that. That's that coach I saw on TV, just stood up and walked out, called him. And then that's kind of how the ball started. Took my official visit. Oh, maybe less than a month later. And Clemson was the only school that was willing to put in a two, four transfer waiver, which means if you remember, my grades weren't good enough to go to college from the get go. So I was non-qualified to play NCAA sports at all. I just wouldn't been allowed to, unless I completed my two year associate's degree and then transferred in. But at this point, I'm already four years removed from high school. I'm already training my ass off every day to potentially play college. And now you're telling me I might have to wait another two years before I can even legally play. And so Coach Sweeney at Clemson was like, no, there's a 2-4 transfer waiver that makes exceptions, blah, 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 blah. They put it in, NCAA approves it. Looking back on it, I doubt they wanted to be the the organization that denied a two-purple heart recipient kid. to play college football, <laughs> right? Like, like the whole way through, yeah. like you were telling me that on my shoulder too, like, no, don't worry. They don't want to be the people to say no. And it's like, you know, yeah. again, I don't like talking about myself, but when I was thinking about it, I was like, okay, man, if they do say no, that's going to be a bad look for them. Like, so I had like this like really good sentimental side pushing it as well. Like, let's get this kid on the field. And so the process was kind of expedited. I had a division one program that wanted me in their locker room. <clears throat> and after a year of community college, I was in probably the best shape of my life going in, um, walked on, was a, earned a scholarship at Clemson University, <clears throat> played in 37 consecutive games while I was there, uh, have a uh, Orange Bowl championship ring, a BCS ring. Um, yeah, it was incredible. I played with some absolute studs, the highest paid wide receiver in the NFL right now, and arguably the best wide receiver in the league. DeAndre Hopkins was you know, my it still is one of my good friends to this day. So just like the relationships I made and the the dream that I was checking off was unimaginable at the level I, I was accomplishing at, at this point. And, you know, obviously I'm living out of promise and I was doing CNN interview or uh, ESPN interviews and just a lot of uh, limelight was cast down in this part of like my journey, which kind of sp- sp- snowballed into me having a chance to write a book. So I wrote an autobiography when I was in college that hit bestsellers list. So before I graduated, I was actually flying and giving speeches at different like Fortune 500 companies, sometimes other universities. That's kind of funny. I like go speak at another university. They're like, what are you doing now? I'll be like, I mean, I actually miss class day. I got to go back. I got a game Saturday. <laughs> 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 my Q and A's from college, other college students. I'd be like, I'm actually studying right now. <laughs> Got an exam wow, tomorrow. <laughs> can, I, can I interrupt? Sorry, man. Just to, I want to just again highlight that moment because 
Darbo Sweeney is arguably one of the uh, best coaches in, in NCAA history. Like, he's amazing. He's very well sought after. He's well known. But <laughs> I remember you saying something. So you had been training the house down. You've been training the house down. Um, you've got out of this, obviously, this um, this um, just this tough space. Right? You're obviously still not sleeping correctly. You're having that moment. But you're dedicating everything to this one thing, which is to fulfill a promise and also your own dream. Go to college. Play football in college. I remember you saying this, like, didn't you say something, and, and, and this is paraphrasing, so let me know if I'm incorrect in saying this, but you said something along the lines of, like, you know, Mr. Sweeney, Coach Sweeney, I haven't, uh, just letting you know, I haven't played in a few years, but I'll give you everything. And he's like, did he say, he's like, son, I don't <laughs> care. I just need you in my locker room. Isn't that what he said? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. So I didn't, I didn't throw myself under that, that, like, I never doubted myself, right? I knew I was, yeah, sure, 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 sure. but I did tell him, I was like, you know, I was like, listen, actually he, he came at, he, he was the one who, when I called him, right. So this is all in the same manner of me walking up out of class. He left his phone number. It's on the bottom of saying, so I immediately call back. I'm like, Hey, is this coach Sweeney? Well, I was Dana Son, I just, I'll tell you, I just watched your recruitment video. I couldn't, I couldn't look away. I couldn't look away. I watched it twice, shared it with my, shared it with my son. And like his story is, he's like, look, look, man, I get a hundred emails a day from, this person telling me they got to watch this kid, this, that, and the other. Like, and at this point I never thought of it like that. And so he's like, yeah, man. He's like, but my boss sent me this video. He's like, when your boss sends you a video, you got to open it. So apparently <laughs> the story goes, and this, you know, this is a true story. Some donor, right? So whoever coach Sweeney's boss, there's only like two people above coach Sweeney. That's the donors and the athletic director. Other than that, he's on his own little mountain. So somebody who's paying his checks or signing off on his check is like, Hey, you need to check this video out. And so he did, he did just that. He opened it up as soon as he got it. And he sent me an email within 10 minutes of, of watching it. And I call him and he's all just, he's just as gassed up as I seen him on TV. He's like, son, this was, I don't even know if you can catch a football. And then not important. I want you in my locker room. <laughs> he's like, I don't, yeah, like, I don't even know if you can catch football, son, but I want you in my locker room. He's like, we're changing the program around here. We're changing the culture. He's like, you got tangible skills that I need in my locker room, son. We're going to do what we can to get you down in Clemson university, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, I hadn't met him, but I knew just kind of the, the way I felt seeing him on TV that one time mm. now talking to him on the phone. Like it was the motion was, was being set that I was going to go play at Clemson. And within the year I was that summer that fall again, this is the end of the first semester. So that following summer I was enrolled in by July for summer two for summer program two July. And I was playing on the field that September. So it was like That's a pretty, crazy. pretty wild ride. But again, played 37 consecutive games. Um, it was awesome. Yeah, I had a touchdown. I think I had like 11 catches in my, my career or something like that. So Incredible feat, man. Like to, to one, like obviously get the, the launch pad, but then you actually took hold of it, man. Like to, to play in that many consecutive games, irrespective – like, you know, you're still going to be good enough, right? So 100%. that's epic. 100%. And then 100%. you got to be good enough. Um, but then then something else happened. So you obviously finished college and you still – were you still in the speaking circuit thing as well and writing your book? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no. So it it, it was always a dream of mine to play professionally um, from as a kid. And I'm not ashamed to say that. I think a lot of people are like, ah, are afraid to say what their dreams were as a kid. I avidly would tell you I wanted to be a professional athlete or an actor. Like as a kid, I would, my dad was such an influence on me. We'd play sport, we'd go home and then we'd play all day sports. 
I'd get dropped off at school at the wherever. And then before we'd go home, this is like the VHS era, like we'd stop by Blockbuster or, you know, this is also when Blockbuster had like competition. Like in my neighborhood, we had like this little, I don't even know what you call it, like a little shopping center type thing. You know, it's got like 50 other stores in there, but one of them was called Family Video. And so it was just really convenient for anybody who lived in that neighborhood. You could just go to Family Video, rent a video and, you know, it was Blockbuster, but closer. And so my whole life I'd get done playing sports and then we'd go to Blockbuster or family video and go get a new release and watch. And my dad was obsessed with Westerns, obsessed with like war movies. He was in the army as well. So as a kid, I always wanted to be an actor and a professional athlete because that's what my life really to some degree revolved around. And so as the chapters climb and my story and I'm going up this mountain and I realized that my dreams were a lot closer now that I'm climbing this mountain than they were when I first started. And really in retrospect, this mountain started when I was a kid. Um, so I was so close and had so many NFL scouts on a daily basis at my practices. I knew what it would take to kind of get to the next level and also knew that I had, I had been watering the right plant, like the right soil for this opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'd put everything on the line, but, um, not really thinking NFL when I was wanted college, the cards played right where I had an opportunity to show out in a pro day, run routes in front of all 32 NFL teams, run my 40, tell about myself, etc. And yeah, I got a free agency opportunity, one with the Washington now football team and one with the uh, then St. Louis Rams, now LA Rams. And so I signed a contract with the Rams, ended up playing four preseason games, was concussed on my fourth preseason game ended up getting cut. Um, but what happened was I was living in California with my ex, the Aussie. Um, and I moved back to California after being concussed and cut. And the team told me that they're going to bring me back for another tryout next season. And literally before the kickoff of the first season, the St. Louis Rams announced that the team would be moving to LA at the end of that season. So the stars just kind of aligned where I'd written out my football career at that point. I didn't realize that was my last play ever, but it was slowly, settling or, or becoming known that I wasn't probably going to play sport again. Um, but that wave and that network and that energy of that team and that dream followed me to California when I moved out there after college. And that really just became almost a serendipitous spark that I needed because of just the relationships, the entertainment industry that I was branching out to the startup company, the advocacy for marijuana and psilocybin, just the West coast mentality that took me into different dimensions and different chapters that, that I'm now foreseeing and being able to enjoy because of the journey of football in Clemson and from the East coast and hell, even further East over in the middle East. So like, um, it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a wild ride. Um, you know, and I know we don't have too much time, but, uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a journey for me and, you know, I'm hoping there's a lot more, uh, I got acting coming up You know, I told you I'm filming another movie in uh, March, which I'm really excited about. It'll be my biggest film to date. And uh, yeah, man, just trying to keep my my positivity alive, my dreams alive, and do my best to go out and accomplish them when I when I can and, and make the most of this life. D Rod, you are an absolute inspiration, bro. Like you really are. It is <laughs> absolutely crazy to think anything but of you. And everyone listening in, definitely go and watch the outpost on Netflix. Because irrespective if you watch the whole movie, there's a certain actor in there who plays himself. So D-Rod plays himself 
in that movie of the bloody battle that he was talking about. So you see him and even there is a moment where Thompson goes down. Like you see you see him trying to pull – I won't give away too much, but you see him trying to do his best to like, you know, look after him. So, you know, prior to that you'd been in a Netflix, um, you know, series. You were now – then you played yourself in a role, which, you know, you couldn't act better obviously. And as a result of those two amongst other things and your networking, you are now doing more acting. You got a, you do, you're a musician, you're an artist and <laughs> like yeah, you're only 30, you're only 33 yet. You've done so much already. So as I said earlier, man, your story isn't just inspiring from the past, but every single chapter you lay is inspiring, bro. And it's so cool. Like it's so like, I'm so excited to hear what not only 2022 brings but the rest of the years that uh, are following man because you just throw yourself into things and you do and it may be whatever circumstances but um dude i'm this is the longest podcast i've ever had to date and i'm proud of the fact that it is with you bro it is it is honestly awesome because i want to make sure we get your story uh story down so Dude, uh, before we before we have to let you go, because I know you're off to, to school uh, in Medellin, <laughs> mate. What's what is uh, where's the best way to get in contact with you? I would my social, uh, my Instagram is pretty accessible. It's uh, Danny Del yep. Rey is my artist name for all my music. Um, Instagram or uh, YouTube, I, I'm pretty active on YouTube as well. It's probably my biggest platform for my videos, and that's just Daniel Rodriguez as well. Danny Del Rey, you can search it. Um, Twitter, I have a pretty good fan base following there. I try to keep active with uh, just Daniel Rodriguez, Daniel Ray Rodriguez again. But yeah, I, you know, I'm <clears throat> pretty easy to get in touch with. I appreciate people who, who follow the journey. Um, you know, I, I like sharing um, new things and, and my creative side on those platforms. So it's it's really encouraging for for me to get comments or people. Oh man, I didn't expect this out of you hearing your story from before. So yeah, no, it's it's really cool to to have people uh, uh, express that they like my stuff and are listening to my music and are, and are inspired by my journey. That's always appreciative and, and humbling to hear. Dude, you're an absolute legend, man. I'm sorry we have to stop so uh, quickly. <laughs> Otherwise, I just keep it all going, dude. But um, man, I really just friends. want to say thank you. That's why we're well, friends. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, bro. Um, but yeah, man, thank you for your openness, your honesty, um, your inspiring story, and, and obviously what you've done in other countries for the country that you're a part of, um, for, you know, uh, making good, honest uh, execution of a promise to someone that was dear to you as well and thank you just being danny man thanks for being d-rod bro thank you for being part of the <laughs> table podcast until you're in new york city um uh, adios is that how i say it adios amigo ciao hasta pronto adios amigo. <laughs> thank you so much my man i appreciate it anytime my man i'll see you in new york soon i'll be up there nice man let me know